Hi, thank you for joining us today on this CIO live stream. It is my honor and pleasure to be joining you live from the global headquarters of the world's best capitalized bank headquartered in the world's best capitalized country. We have a cavalcade of stars talking to you today about kind of what are the big building blocks, the most important building blocks of a portfolio today. And this is really important because the S&P 500 is up around 40% since October 2022. Magnificent seven stocks are up close to 140% over the same period. And so we have uh, some clients who were allocated in such a way and they're thinking, wow, it's time to pull back. Uh, I, I, I'm afraid of, you know, that this can't go any higher. On the other hand, we have a lot of clients who maybe had a home bias to their, to their own country around the world. And they say, boy, I missed some of this. Is it too late to get in? And so people are frozen. So wherever you are and whatever you need to do to your portfolio, we wanna to try to help unstick you a little bit today. And I think there's no better place to start with this than turning it over to David, who has uh, you know, been working, uh, done a great job. I, I, I won't say when he made the, the calls, but in the fall, he got more bullish on, uh, on the US and it turned out to be a great call. Uh, so David, take it away. Tell us a little bit more about what you saw and what you continue to see in this resilience in the US economy. Yeah, sure, thanks, Mark. And thanks for having me and good day to everybody. Um, so I, I would say there's been four key drivers that have really supported the, the rally that you described. And, and really it's been going on even longer than that, you know, really uh, over the, the full course of 2023 and, and now continuing into 24. Uh, the, first, the first key driver is that the U.S. economy has just been much more resilient than, uh, you know, frankly, we at, and almost every other investor expected. Um, and I think we have a chart here that really just demonstrates, you know, part of the reason why uh, it's been so resilient is that, right, you know, right now we're in the situation where we have more job openings than there are unemployed workers in the United States. And that's a pretty unusual circumstance and gives us a lot of comfort that this expansion that um, a lot of people were doubting uh, will likely continue. So, uh, and now we do have the chart up. So just showing that there's, there's more unemployed, there's more open positions available in the US economy for workers today than there are people who are, on, uh, who are not employed, uh, or, or I should say who are, who are unemployed. So in other words, there's still, this is gonna support consumer spending and consumer spending we think is gonna be well supported going forward. What this is leading to on the next slide is a pickup in earnings growth. Uh, so uh, that's been a, another very key catalyst that uh, that's been a driver of the rally, you know, especially since October, um, is we had a, a brief earnings recession in uh, in the earlier part of, of 2023, starting in, in really late 2022, and and now we've seen we've seen a clear pivot to uh, to an improvement in earnings. So the first point here, we've had strong, we've had resilient economic growth leading to strong, good profit growth. The other important point is that inflation has improved. Um, and, and, and as a result of that, the third point is that the Fed it is now in a position where they have pivoted 
from raising interest rates. We, we think they're pretty much done with raising interest rates and we think they're gonna start to cut interest rates going forward. And that's a, that's a, that's a key change in the environment. We're looking for three interest rate cuts this year, starting in, in June. Uh, so another you know, very key change in, in the environment. And then look, we couldn't, we couldn't talk about the markets mark without talking about AI. Um, just a tremendous surge in investment in terms of building out the artificial intelligence infrastructure. And, and by the way, while we're on this slide here, um, in the fourth quarter, if you look at the magnificent seven stocks, they're basically accounting for all of the earnings growth that, that is being uh, generated in the fourth quarter. Now, we think that's going to broaden out as we go into uh, later into 2024. Um, but right now, it's a, it's a very powerful trend. Uh, and we think we're still in the early innings. This is not going to be a straight line, clearly, from, a, from an investment performance perspective. But you know, we're just now putting the infrastructure in place for AI. Uh, this year is also going to be about the, the adoption of some of the applications. So to sum it up, resilient economic growth, better inflation, Fed pivot, and boom in, in AI. All right, David. Uh, thank you for that view on the, on the U.S. Now we're going to turn it over to Rolf, our resident expert on European equities. And, you know, Rolf, the uh, growth in Europe uh, has been much more subdued. Maybe earnings uh, were, not, were not as bad as feared. Should people who are global investors, should they be looking at Europe right now? I think they should, Mark, because it's the lost continent. And perhaps you can uh, forward here a couple of slides. You know, I always say everything in life has its price, right? With the exception of health, that's priceless. But, you know, we got to a level, and if you just look at that slide here, right, where I know, yes, the sector composition is differently here in Europe versus the US, but we are so cheap, you know, actually we could look at it. And in Europe, what do we like here? I mean, just look at our smaller mid caps. We are at uh, 20 year lows, 20 year lows. Normally they trade around 10% premium, now 12% discount. And you know, if we are right, and I think we are right, right? Interest rates coming down over time. A lot of these companies, especially in Europe, are financed via bank loans. They're gonna benefit one-to-one -one because they have variable interest rates. And so this is really something we like. And uh, as I said, right, it's a little bit the lost continent or the continent we might go for traveling, but not necessarily, not necessarily for, for investing. But I think there's now a time where we at least, you know, don't put all eggs in one basket. I know Eastern is just in front of us, but don't put it all in one basket. Diversify a little bit, and hey, Europe is a nice place. And by the way, Mark, and also to David, what are people doing with all the money they made in the US equity market? They spend it. They spend it for European luxury goods. And we see that immediately in the margins, if you look at the right side, there's only one way, you know, the only way is up. And they're going to talk later on about the magnificent seven here in Europe. Now. All right. Well, that. Uh is going to conclude the public section of our live stream. So now we're going to go to the client only segment and uh, maybe we will hear more about those uh, European Magnificent Seven. So thank you for tuning in. I'm not going to say make it a great day. I'm just going to say have the kind of day that you need to have. All right. So now we're going to turn it over to uh, Crystal, and you know you're looking cross asset. So help us make sense of what a good financial plan and a good portfolio looks like when we look at the situation uh, right now. 
Yeah, thanks, Mark, for bringing a very key topic that we are talking with clients on a daily basis. That is how to build actually a robust portfolio. We heard from David that U.S. tech is definitely the topic in the market, but also from Rolf about the importance to diversify. So I think from the portfolio construction perspective, there are four building blocks that we should not ignore. So the first one will be the U.S. large caps. And you can see on slide number eight that there are three key reasons why you should definitely have a decent exposure in this perspective. First, U.S. tech companies are leading in the AI revolution. And this is the technology we are seeing the unprecedented speed of how quickly it can monetize across the supply chain on this theme. And going forward, this is going to be the big thing for the next five to 10 years as well. So that's definitely the key reason we should have a decent exposure on U.S. large caps. But is the U.S. stock really just about tech? The answer is clearly no, because this is also a 19 trillion consumer market with 35% of the company revenue come from global. So this is where you can have a decent exposure in the broader opportunity set across the industrials, healthcare, so on and so forth. Last but not least, it's also one of the deepest and the biggest capital markets. So when we think about trading in the secondary market on the liquidity side, this offers you a very decent market opportunity as well. So we all know how well the U.S. equity have done for the past 10 to 15 years. Does that mean we should only have U.S. equities but nothing else? And the answer is clearly no. Because if there's only one free lunch you can have in the investment world, that is diversification. And sometimes we also have to think a little bit longer term rather than only focus on the most recent history. That brings us to the second building block, which is the international stocks. So first, we all know AI is going to be the next big thing. But is the world only going to be AI or there will be certain opportunities in the new manufacturing hub setup, in the clean energy, so on and so forth. So that's where we should always be more open-minded about to taking a more broader opportunity set for the next big thing to happen. As a matter of fact, if we think about the EV makers, if we think about the healthcare, the diabetes drugs, they are quite big representation, semiconductors as well, with the companies located in APEC as well as Europe. And second, from the historical perspective, we have also seen the period of time a very extended period of time, U.S. equity market didn't outperform. So if we go to the next slide on number nine, you can see for the past 25 years, there are certain markets has definitely outperformed the U.S. market. And another striking example I want to share with you is if you invest $100 during the peak of Nasdaq in early 2000, it took you 15 years for you to get your principal back. But during the same period of time, emerging market was doubled. So that is where we do think it's important to be more open-minded. I can't emphasize that more than enough. But last but not least, if we go to the slide number eight, you can see the last point for international stock is that the lower valuation. We all know lower valuation doesn't really matter if we think about six months to 12 months return, but it does matter for the next five to 10 years. And we have done the analysis across all different developed and emerging markets. The starting point on the valuation does matter, especially for your long-term investment goal.
But besides the equities, we also need to have certain stabilizer for the portfolios, and that is where quality bonds and alternatives comes in. So for the quality bonds, this has been one of the areas we try to promote for the past 12 months at least, because first, it gives you the liquidity safety, and second, over the cycle, it gives you higher return and recurring income than cash. Last but not least, we know many people suffered from the positive correlation of equity and bonds in 2022. But 2023 is also a good example to show you that both of them could come back together. And if you look at the long-term correlation between equity and bonds, they do tend to mean revert, meaning that for the next business cycle, we do expect the bonds can be effective diversifier from here. And last but not least on the alternatives, this is a very effective asset class that is able for us to harvest a broader opportunity set and also a potentially higher return. More importantly, during the public equity and bonds stress period, such as GFC, such as COVID, by having some allocation to alternatives is able to smooth the journey during the market drawdown. Thank you, Crystal. Uh, now, what I want to do is ask uh, David, Rolf, and Crystal kind of more concretely, what would you be doing right now uh, from your perspective in portfolios? So, you know, David, let's start with you. And obviously, uh, that starts with further gains for U.S. large cap. If not, what, what else would you be looking at? Yeah, great question, Mark. So, yeah, we talked about some of the the key uh, drivers of of the rally in U.S. large caps, and and I think, look, I think the reality is a lot of this is is pretty much priced into markets. You know, that doesn't mean that uh, we can't see some more additional upside. We think there's a little bit more to go, um, but our main message has been, look, we have a neutral allocation to U.S. equities. That means we think clients and investors should have uh, allocations that are in line with their long-term strategic allocations. And, and just given the fact that when we look at valuations, when we look at some of the sentiment and positioning uh, indicators, they are looking a little bit elevated. So, you know, it wouldn't be surprising if we see a little bit of profit taking, taking at some point, and that could be an opportunity to, uh, to increase positions in, in U.S. equities. Where we do find, uh, I would say more interesting opportunities right now is, is an area I would highlight is, is something like small U.S. companies. So uh, U.S. small caps, you know, first of all, they're, they're very cheap. Um, and so that gives us, I think, a, a very high degree of a margin of safety. Uh, if you look at the S&P 500, that's trading at a, a PE multiple of 20 times. You look at the uh, S&P small cap 600 index, that's trading at 14 times. So a really huge spread between small and large caps. In fact, we haven't seen a spread this wide since the peak of the dot-com bubble. And now the question is, what's gonna unlock this valuation discount that we see uh, for smaller companies? And, and here, I think there are two catalysts. First is that we think we're gonna see a, an improvement in earnings growth in, in smaller companies. Last year was, was challenging for smaller companies. Uh, they had a, a decline in earnings growth of, a, of over 10%. Uh, but we think as manufacturing sentiment improves, I think we have a, a slide that highlights this, uh, as manufacturing sentiment improves, what we tend to see is that 
smaller companies tend to start outperforming. So we've started to see an improvement in manufacturing sentiment. We think uh, that's going to drive a pickup in earnings growth for smaller companies, which actually industrials is uh, the largest sector in the small cap index. Uh, so that's an important thing to bear in mind. Um, and, and we think that's going to be a key driver. The other thing here is that we're also starting to see uh, a loosening of financial conditions. Um, you know, so Russell 2000 companies, that's another small cap index. They're starting, we're seeing IPOs, we're seeing secondary equity offerings, the high yield market is open. So, you know, because these smaller companies are lower quality, sometimes they need that access to capital to be fairly loose. And that's exactly what we're seeing. So that gives us also some comfort that uh, that's going to be uh, supportive for the call. And then lastly, look, I, I think Fed rate cuts are, are also an important driver here. Uh, so, you know, as we talked about earlier, we do expect we're going to see three Fed rate cuts this year. There's a very high proportion of uh, debt at, at smaller companies that is floating rate. Rolf talked about this in Europe. Um, there's a very high proportion of debt in the U.S. for small caps that is floating rate debt tied to the overnight uh, lending rate. And when the Fed starts cutting interest rates, these smaller companies should see a direct one-to-one -one, uh, benefit from that. So uh, cheap valuations, and we think they're a catalyst to unlock those valuations through better earnings growth, manufacturing sentiment, and, and ultimately Fed rate cuts. All right, Rolf, finally, I want to hear about these uh, magnificent, magnificent seven in Europe. Sure, Mark. I mean, if you just, uh, somebody, yeah, here we go. Let's start with the performance first. I mean, what's it all about? And I'll give you the solution in a minute. These are stocks, well, no surprise, right? Seven stocks, which have so far clearly beaten the MSCI world, ticked the box. But believe it or not, they have also beaten over the last three years, actually, their counterparts in the US. And actually, yeah, last year they were not as great, but year to date, they're also shooting out in a way the lights. Now, what are we talking about? Why would you come to Europe in the first place? We're not famous for platforms, social media, absolutely high tech, but what are we looking at? I said it earlier, right, when I said, hey, you come to spend the money. You spend it for what? Luxury goods. You spend it for, yeah, beauty. And we have here a couple of world leading companies here in Europe, right? So what do we like? We like brand, we like pricing power. Actually, I like uh, companies which generate plenty of cash. I'm not a fan of cash burn. And you know, they provide quality and growth at the same time and a great brand there as well. So luxury, beauty, um, clearly also some technology names, but not the ones you have probably in the US, but certainly things which are more focused, providing unique positions within the world, but everybody uses that, but it's not something, you know, uh, perhaps too often known. These are seven companies which really, I wouldn't say shoot the lights out, but at least uh, have here a superior positioning and a, there's no need to hide. And if you look at the next page here, if we just compare it a little bit, right? We like earnings growth, we like revenue growth uh, as, you know, investors, I mean, yeah, you, you're not surprised to see they're probably better here than Europe overall, but even if you compare them to the US counterparts, you see that earnings growth, right? Is pretty much, if you go across the board, it, it's similar. By the way, you pay also a similar multiple, um, uh, just to make that clear, it's not cheap, but it's never cheap to buy luxury, right? I'm not rich enough to buy quality or cheap quality. I pay a decent price, I get something in return. And this is what you really get with this Magnificent Seven. And by the way, you get also lower volatility. So for the good night's sleep, quality, gross, good brands, pricing power. Mark, what else do you want? And I think it's a good diversifier, um, what was also mentioned a few times already. Yeah, you had me at uh, good night's sleep. So 
Thank you for that. All right, now turning to Crystal, uh, your view on the concrete things people should be doing right now in the markets. Yeah, sure. So um, if we go to the slide number 10, right? So talking about the building blocks, then the next question is how much weight we should assign to each of the building blocks. And that is really depends on your investment goal. So we think for all the clients, it's very important for you to set up a clear investment goal, but also during the process, you need to have a disciplined guidance along the way. We all know we're all driven by emotion, driven by headline news, but end of the day, the most important thing is for us to minimize the drawdown when the market is in the distress, but over the long run, we can still in the market participate in stay invested. A couple of the lessons we have learned and we want to share with you first is on excessive home buyers. So if we go to slide number 11, you can see that for many of the jurisdictions in the world, be it developing markets or developed countries, the actual equity market weight is actually very little in comparison to US equities. But if you look at for all these jurisdictions, the local investors, they are holding more than half of their equity exposure into their local markets. So that means by overly exposed to the whole market, they are missing disproportionately a lot of the opportunities in the US market. And we think over the long run, that is one mistake we should try to avoid. And second, if we go back to slide number 10, is for the clients who already has the tax exposure, what is the best way to participate? Are we going to chase the best performing stocks in the past 12 months? or we should broaden out that. I'm pretty sure David has more clues later to provide to us, but this is precisely the reason why we are here, to give you the list of the stocks we liked the most in the risk-controlled way, but also help you to assign the weights so you can have a robust exposure within the tech part for your equity exposure. And last but not least, we do think the current environment is very ideal for the capital preservation strategies because you have the very low implied equity vol, but you also have the elevated bond yields. So for the clients who are a little bit hesitated when to enter the market, we think with some upside protection, with some upside participation, but also downside protection, is a more comfortable way for you to start to dip your toes into the market. And for the clients who are concerned about geopolitical risk, then probably oil, energy stock, as well as gold, are a very good hedge for your portfolio in the terms of the geopolitical risk intensified or we have a comeback of the inflation. So over the long run, we think getting stick to your plan, have a very disciplined process is very important for us to dynamically manage the four building blocks we have been talking about. All right, thanks, Crystal. Now we turn to my favorite part of the broadcast, which is the questions. We've got a lot of questions rolling in, and I'm going to go through here. And I think this first one, probably the best way to ask it is, uh, is there anything you'd recommend investors avoid currently? And since we just did what everybody likes, maybe if you all go through and just mention kind of the, the thing that uh, you like the least maybe now, or you think is going to appreciate less than some of the other opportunities we've highlighted? Yeah, I, I can kick off Mark on, from the US equity side. Um, so from a sector perspective, 
we are underweight uh, two sectors, real estate and utilities. Um, look, you know, for, for utilities, this is a, a very defensive sector. Uh, so in times of good economic growth, it, it tends to underperform. Uh, for real estate, you know, it, it's, yeah, I think everyone's probably aware of some of the, the concerns around commercial real estate and things like that. There's really not that exposure in US listed real estate, but at the same time, you know, we don't see much scope for significant earnings, well, FFO growth uh, for the listed real estate companies here. So we think you can get better earnings growth in other parts of the market if I had to sum it up really for, for both of these sectors. Thanks. What about you, Rolf? Actually, you know, we have really a difference when you look a little bit the way sectors are, are um, actually the decomposition of, of a sector. And for example, we don't like communication services here in Europe. It's more the traditional communication slash telecom companies. And we're quite careful, a lot of spending to keep up with technology. So we see that as least preferred, don't touch it. And also we have a little bit in Europe, right? Also here, when we look, for example, the healthcare sector, we still have a preference for consumer staples versus healthcare, a little bit different dynamics than in the US. And these are the two sectors we would avoid at this stage. Crystal. Sure. So I think it's very important for us to distinguish between the strategic asset allocation versus the tactical asset allocation. So in the strategic basis, we don't think you should necessarily avoid any asset classes that give you a very decent risk adjusted return. But on the technical basis, for instance, in the equity side across the regions, we do see less upside on the UK equities versus emerging market equities. So that is where we have a slight underweight in the portfolio. But that doesn't mean you should avoid it altogether, because as Rob mentioned, UK is quite similar to Europe as well, which is trading very cheaply. But it's just in the near term, we don't really see a correct and clear immediate catalyst to drive that market up more than others. All right, thank you. Now we've got some specific market questions. Uh, Crystal, China Tech, do you want to take that? What do we think? Yeah, sure. I think um, for China Tech, definitely it has been quite painful for the past 24 months. And to be honest, when we think about how to invest in China, after the COVID, we probably also have to change our mindset a little bit as well because before the COVID, potentially China is long-term building blocks for the investment strategies. But afterwards, due to the rising geopolitical risk and also the uncertainty on the policy side, it probably has a more trading characteristics than a long-term strategic um, characteristics. That's why we think we probably need to look for the immediate catalyst to give us a sense whether we're close to the inflection point that on the trading perspective, there is some decent opportunity. And if we look at the price stabilization for the past one month, I don't know whether you have noticed, Mark, Chinese equity has been the best performing asset classes, followed by Europe, followed by others, followed by the US. So that is showing you price stabilization is very important because you do need that for people to start to look into this market. And the second, we have been going through the earnings downgrade for a very long period of time. And in the past three months, we also start to see the stabilization on the earnings revision, especially for the Chinese tech companies. And last but not least, when Rob talk about the valuation, we can look at where the valuation is for the big, large tech companies in China. Many of them are even trading lower than the prior IPO price more than 10 years ago. So it is telling you there's still a lot of hesitation or skepticism in this market. But in the near term, as mentioned, with some downside protection, 
we do think there are some trading opportunities in this sector. Uh, in this sector. All right, thank you. And we've got another question, basically on uh, U.S. tech, or which you know is that really what we should be focused on in the S and P? What do you what do you think, David? Yeah, Mark, I, I think it's important to to put our recommendations in context. You know, first of all, as Crystal mentioned, we you know the way we think about this is that clients should have a strategic allocation and then make tactical tilts on top of that, right? So part of our tactical tilts, we do like tech, but that's not the only thing we like. Uh, so we, we, we constantly think about this in a portfolio context. We wanna be managing uh, risk and return. Uh, so we still think that we do think there is upside in US tech. Now, look, it's had a very nice move um, so, as I said earlier, this is not going to move in a straight line, especially when we're when we're talking about new growth markets uh, like we are with uh, artificial intelligence. That being said, we're still in the very early innings of this, and we do think it's important to have exposure for long-term portfolios. But that shouldn't be your only tactical overweight. Uh, we also like healthcare and we like industrials. Um, so I, the the main point here is to uh, yes stay focused on tech, but also make sure you broaden your lens and, and make sure your, your portfolio is diversified across a whole host of, uh, of different opportunities. All right, thank you, David. And we've got, uh, I guess we have time for one last question here, and it's about the employment and jobs chart that you showed. And, you know, it's not something we've seen before in a long time, so maybe you can talk about the risks to the base case when you look at something that you see when you look at something like that. Yeah, I think it's an important question. Um, I'm glad we got it. I, I think when I look at this chart, I think the main risk is that we just don't really see inflation come down as quickly or as, as, lo as large enough uh, as we'd like to see. Um, so, you know, we are seeing the labor market cool off. And, and I think the important point here is that these lines are converging uh, and they're moving in the right direction um, because the current level of wage growth is probably too high to meet the Fed's goals in the long term. Now, that being said, the thing we don't know, which is always hard to, to, to measure and forecast, is productivity, right? So if there is a big increase in productivity, and, and by the way, this should be a time when we do start seeing increases in productivity, when labor is scarce, uh, and there's new technologies that can help to boost productivity like artificial intelligence. But when labor is scarce, that, that's when companies have the incentive to start investing in technology. And I'm not just talking about AI, I'm just talking about all types of technology to improve productivity. So, uh, so I'd say the risk is that if this persists, that inflation remains hotter and stickier than, than what we would hope and what the Fed would hope. But I also think it's too early to make that conclusion yet, um, just given that these lines are converging and, and the productivity question is still uh, kind of still out there. Great. All right. Well, we're going to have to end it there. Thank you all for joining us. And remember, a lot has happened. So if you haven't taken a good hard look at your portfolio and getting it back into balance after some of these moves, we still think this is a really good time to do that. Thank you and bye-bye.
UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.